Welcome to the Mayor's Waves podcast and thanks for joining us. I'm Kevin McManus, Head of UNESCO City of Music, and today I'm talking with film composer John Murphy on behalf of Liverpool Film Office. John's most recent project is for James Gunn's DC comic book movie, The Suicide Squad, but he's also renowned for his work on films including Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later and Sunshine. He's worked with Guy Ritchie on Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. He's worked on Kick-Ass and many of their big-name films. We'll be talking to John about his work as a film composer, how he works, what it's like working with big-name directors, how he got into the industry in the first place, and also about how his background in Liverpool and starting off as a Liverpool musician has impacted on his career. We're talking to John in his Los Angeles studio, and they're connecting via Zoom, so please bear that in mind when you hear the audio. But thanks for listening, and hope you enjoyed the podcast. Right, so I'm really glad that we've got hold of John Murphy today. John Murphy, for those people who don't know, is a composer who's done major work across movies and films for the last... 20-odd years now. Uh, he's, he's a brutal lad like himself. Uh, I first met him at school when he was in a, a, a Beatles cover band, if you remember that, John. He's an incredibly successful, incredibly busy man, So, and he's, he's been working all night. It's it's early in the morning in LA, but I think he's, he's been working all night, so we're even more pleased that he's made time to speak to us about his career, his life, and, um, and Liverpool, really. So thanks, John. Thanks for uh, making time to speak to us. No, it's a pleasure. I mean, you know... I- as you say, we go back a long, <laughs> a long way. So I remember always competing with you on the English, <laughs> trying to write the best essay because you were the smart lad in the school and I was always trying to... Oh, my uh, my, young sister, my younger sister fancied uh, a lad, Gilly, who was in your bands as well. Gilly, in that, in that. Paul Gil. Yeah. I'll be meant to see you in a pub in Marsh Lane and Brutal, but I could talk about uh, <laughs> and stuff. So it's uh, like, yeah, well, since the last time I saw you, I think it's fair to say you've gone on to do okay for yourself, haven't you? So uh, tell us where, tell us where you are at the moment. So yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's worked out great since since we came over. Um, so you know, I've been living in Los Angeles since I think two thousand and two, which was round about the time I'd done Lockstock and Snatch, and that was when I first started to get some offers in America. And I I'd come over to LA and I'd do a movie here, and then I'd go back and do a movie in England because I still had my studio in Liverpool at the time, and it just ended up that you know just doing that commute, you know, three months in Liverpool, three months in Los Angeles. You know, it was fun at first, but it got to a point where it was it was easier to work from L.A. And th- there was more work coming from L.A. because, you know, they, they make a yeah. lot more movies than the, the U.K. can make. So, you know, I ended up staying longer than I, I'd really intended. And then, of course, you know, you get married and you, you have kids. And then once you settle, you know, you make your life where you are. But I always came back to England. You know, I miss Liverpool terribly. There's, there's a lot of things which you really can't get anywhere else in the yeah. world. You know, the people, the football, you know, sayers, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> You know, so you know, I'm, I make sure I get back to Liverpool. You know, I was going to ask you how often do you get, do you get back to Liverpool and even Bootle, sunny Bootle when you can? I mean, whenever we can. I mean, my my wife is Charlotte's from London, so you know, when we go back, we always do. You know, we spend some time in London with her family, and then we, you know, we head up to Liverpool. And my mum and dad live on a farm, so it's great for the kids. You know, you know, they they can spend time and get all that grandparent love and stuff and then I can go into town with my brothers and get my fix of Liverpool you know I'm, so, I'm, it's, it's it's refreshing to, to hear that you've you've kept a bit of your accent that you haven't gone all LA as well on us it's so funny because even now whenever I talk to anybody who 
doesn't know that I've lived here for a while. They always ask me, oh, so when did you get over? You know, as if it was like <laughs> last week or last month or something, because, you know, the accent, Liverpool accent doesn't leave you. But, you know, to be honest, I mean, I think, you know, with with the job that I do, I mean, I spend so much time just stuck in the studio anyway. It's not like I'm going out yeah. and picking things up. But it's funny, when I first come over here and I met, you know, I had my first agent and... um the first meeting I had just before I moved here was with some people from Warner Brothers and it was one of them meet and greets and we went for lunch in this big posh place. So, you know, we had this meeting and I was nervous. So I was just like talking at a hundred miles an hour. And then at the end of the meeting, my agent said, they told me that they really like you, but no one understood a word that you said. So, you know, but they really liked you. They could see you were, a, you were very you know, animated and excited to be here, but you really need to talk slower. So for about six months after that, I, I tried so hard to talk slow that I sounded like, you know, sort of Ringo <laughs> on drugs or something. It was like, well, you know, it's good to meet you. And, you know, I was just deliberately trying to talk at like half the pace. But so in the end, I ended up not talking with my real bootle accent, but just slowing it down a little. So... God knows what it is now, somewhere in the middle of it. So just going back to those early days when I saw you in school, playing the school bands and stuff, what's your early musical memories? What were you, was your first musical inspiration? And when did you actually decide to pick up a guitar? Because when you were a young lad, when I saw you playing in bands... It was really me dad. Well, two things kind of sort of happened. My dad was a singer, you know, amazing singer. And he used to play all the clubs and the pubs around Liverpool. And so there was always gear lying around. There was always guitars and amps and, and everything. And then I remember, I think my granddad gave me an album, you know, a vinyl of the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl. And I'd never really listened to music that much. I think I must have been about nine or ten. And I had this little record player. And I remember putting this record on and I had these little cheap tandy headphones and I sat there and listened to the first side of this Beatles Live Hollywood Bowl album and it was the weirdest feeling I could feel this like a real electrical feeling it was like going into a trance and I sat there and I heard all the crowds because it was a live album and I heard the, the open I mean I remember the album so well we started with Twist and Shout and I just had this feeling that I'd never ever heard before and then I realized that you know this is what being in a band must be like. And, you know, I went downstairs and I'm looking around at Dad's guitar and the amps and stuff. And that later that day, I it was a weekend, I think. I remember just picking up the like Dad's guitar for the first time, plugging it into, you know, his amp. He had a Laney amp, I remember, and then turning it up. And then I just hit this one note and I, I kept turning the amp louder as it was dying out. And it was this feeling of, like, feeling of power, you know? It was just this, like, oh, my God, this is, like, the coolest thing you could ever do just to hit this one note and have it, like, so loud in the house. And from that moment, I asked my dad the next day to show me some chords. And, you know, my dad only knew five chords, you know, but he, he could sing any song in the world with these five chords. So he <laughs> showed me the first chords. And then from that moment, when you can start, to play something that you recognize, you know, a song that you like, you can play it yourself. There's no going back, you know, it's, it must be like when footballers kick a ball for the first time or they run onto a pitch or they, you sort of know in your head, even though you could be nine or 10, you know that something's changed, you know, you know, there's no going back from that. And there wasn't, you know, so that, that was really the first spark of it. And because my dad was a, you know, he played the pubs and the clubs, you know, once I could play a bit, of a tune and I could play a little bit, he'd take me with him. So I'd be like this little kid playing like these, these really sketchy 
pubs all over yeah. Liverpool, you know, and um, and on the wheel and stuff, you know, like we're like some hard men, you know what I mean? And these Sunday afternoons, and I won't mention places, but there was some really famous pubs that I wouldn't go into now, you know. And uh, but I'd be sitting there, you know, or standing there playing with me dad singing all this country music and and do wop and all this stuff, and it was just amazing. It was just amazing to just be able to play in front of people, and that was really the start of it. It was somewhere between the Beatles and me dad that kind of worked together. And that, no, that, I, that, I know you went on to play. In a bunch of bands before you be uh, composing for films, but do you think Liverpool music and Liverpool sensibilities played a big part in shaping your your own music and your music career? Massively, absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, you know, and it wasn't just really the the bands that I recorded with or I toured with. It it was the whole thing, you know. I mean, people talk about the Liverpool music scene as being so vibrant and so groundbreaking, and it is, you know. I mean, clearly it is. But it's it's the whole thing, you know. It's like when I, you know, remember going to to sort of house parties or you know parties with me family. You know, it was like everyone could play guitar, everyone could sing, you know. And it's, it wasn't until I left Liverpool that you go to someone's house somewhere else from another country and you'd be like, why can no one play the guitar? <laughs> why is no one singing? You know, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. We've had a few beers. Where's the where's the instruments? You know, we get used to that in Liverpool because we're spoiled with it because. It's not just the music of the Beatles and and all these other great bands. It's the music of the city. The whole city's got that, you know, influx of of the Irish as well, you know, and you've got the storytelling culture and this culture to entertain people. You know, part of why people love coming to Liverpool is not just because we're funnier than everybody else in the world, we're or we're warmer than everybody else in the world. We're entertainers. The people themselves are just entertainers. You know, I remember when I first brought my wife to Liverpool and she'd never been. You know, even just stopping someone in the street saying, oh, where's this? Or people will entertain you. You know what I mean? It's like, there's nowhere else in the world like Liverpool. There really isn't. And now I can say that. Yeah. You know, everyone else, everywhere to me, I mean, you've got certain places in in England that have got a lot of that vibe. But, you know, for a long time when I left Liverpool, everywhere just seemed so dry and, and kind of colourless. And I think we take that for granted, that we have that colour in, in the people, in everybody. So I think that sort of urge to entertain and, and try a bit harder, and that is a lot to do with how I approached writing film music because, you know, there was that, you know, there's that saying, isn't there, in, in film music that, you know, a great score is one you don't notice. I've always thought that was bullshit, you know, I've always thought, what do you mean you don't know? Yeah. So my whole approach, certainly from the beginning of, of the films where I feel like I did my things, you know, from like 28 days later, and there was no way I was going to work on a movie and not want to be noticed, you know, and not want to entertain and not want to stand out. And that was just the Liverpool in me. And when... That kind of attitude reaps the kind of rewards where you get offered more work from it and people start being into what you're doing yourself rather than when I used to sound like other people. When you realise that that's what's making the difference and that's where these big directors are coming for you, you sort of never go back from that, you know? And But that's just the Liverpool, you know, because I didn't go to music school, Kev, you know that, and I didn't, you know, there weren't many conservatoires in Bool, you know, and, <laughs> and a lot of the people in LA all went to Juilliard or Berkeley and they, they have this amazing amazing beautiful education that I will never have in terms of music but you know a lot of these guys just don't have that spark so I realized that early on I thought well I'm never going to be the best orchestrator I'm never going to be the best string arranger but why don't I just try and be the best whatever it is that makes up my DNA and a lot of what that DNA was and still is is Liverpool.
No, that's a brilliant, a brilliant answer. I mean, we'll come back to how you composed a bit later, but I think just when you're talking about orchestration and stuff there, the work you did on BBC Les Miserables, I thought was was really rich and, and quite some of the other stuff. I know it was after you had long sort of seven-year break, but it was I think that was a really impressive piece of work, even and still recognizably your work with the odd bits in there. Yeah, I mean it's funny because you know. I sort of talk about DNA. It's like even my publishers like laughed when he heard that. He said, it's so not you, but it's so you as well. It's yeah. like, because I think there's certain sort of ways that, that you lean towards. And it's really down to what records you listen to when you were a kid, you know, and, and it's it's the music you get into because we, we, you know, all composers are products of the music that they love. No matter how big a composer, whether it's Morricone, you can see that he's got this love of Bach. If it's Danny Elfman, you can see he loves Prokofiev, you know, it's, and that's okay. It, you know, it's, with these melting pots of, of the stuff we listen to in headphones when we were younger. Yeah. And so I think a lot of the things, you know, especially with the aggressive stuff and the dirty sounds and stuff, a lot of that's me just trying to be a punk again. And the really melodic thematic stuff is me trying to be John Lennon, you know, without realizing it, it's really me wanting to be as good as these people without ever so I'm going to rip this person off because there's no point in ever doing that. But it comes out, you know, whatever it is that is in that DNA. And with me, it seems to come out <laughs> even when I'm trying to sound like somebody else. It's like it just ends up sounding like me for better or for worse. No, so I remember bumping into you and Dave Hughes, who you were working with at the time, and you you told me you'd been asked to do some work on a film. So it, it's from the outside, it kind of looked like you, you fell into what has become a very successful career. So do you want to tell us how, how you ended up doing the music for Leon the Pig Farmer, which I think was your first notable work? Yeah. I mean, it was one of them things where it feels like, you know, you've sort of got a break overnight. And in a lot of senses it was, but we'd been writing songs together and we'd been basically touring with bands and you know and I kind of had enough I think it was about like 25 years of age and I'd been touring for like five years and I was already thinking you know it's got to be more than this which is what touring life is like so I'd met some guy in London through a friend of a friend and um, he was an editor on, on this documentary and he you know we ended up drinking and going into Soho and he was telling me about a film he was making but he's got no money and he's trying to get this movie made and you know he said you should you know write some songs for it and you know when you're out and it's two in the morning you're like yeah yeah I'll write all the songs for this I'm a songwriter I didn't do that so anyway so we had a good night and, and I forgot about it and then about six months later I remember seeing this um, thing on the news about um, this film that was being made through now you'd call it crowdfunding but they were basically trying to raise money from everywhere you know from everywhere and it was this film, Leon the Pig Farm. I thought, oh God, that's the film that that guy was talking to me about. He's actually making it. So I still had his number. So I rang him up and just said, look, I'm still here. If you still want me to write the songs, I'll I'll write the songs. And, then, and he said, well, you know, a lot of people now are pitching songs to us and we've got publishers because they see the films getting made, but, you know, pitch some songs if you want. So I went back to Dave and said, let's, you know, let's just write some songs for this thing. We've got the script and see. And we didn't have a studio. So we went into Andy Redhead's back bedroom and <laughs> uh, you know Andy from the Lotus Eaters and Tom Thomas Lang and stuff and we made some you know we wrote some stuff and made some demos and sent them in and we didn't hear anything for a few weeks and then they got back and said we love the songs can you meet us in London I want you to meet the producers and the directors and so me and Dave went to London and we had this brilliant meeting with them in this posh cafe at the end of it they said well look we really want you to write the songs but we've got no money for a composer you know can you write the the, the score as well and you know being scousers we were like yeah, yeah, sound, no problem, lad. We'll sort you out, you know. We were just 
idiots. We didn't have a clue how to write a score. So, you know, having promised that we could do it, they left the cafe and me and Dave are sitting there going, what do we do now? Because we have no idea how to write a film score. And I think Dave said, well, there's a bookshop, like a film bookshop, a few doors down, let's go and see if there's a book on how to write a film score. So we went, okay, that'll sort it. So we just comes out of this meeting, goes into this little bookshop. And we, the first shelf we went to, there's a book called How to Write a Film Score. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't write it. And it just, we went, oh, there's the book. So we got the book and ran and got the train back to Liverpool. And I remember saying when we got there to the train station, okay, so we'll read the book on the way back to Liverpool and then we'll know how to write a film score. But of course, we end up having a few drinks first and then to celebrate because we were now like film composers, you know? <laughs> and then we're like, okay, we'll have one more, then we'll read the book, you know? And of course, you know, there's Pulling Into Lime Street. We hadn't read the book. And we actually never, ever read the book. I think Dave still got the book, but you know, maybe I should have read the book. I would have been easier, but so that was it. But what we did instead was we watched, we had a few weeks before we had to start writing the score. So separately, we we watched a lot of films that we, that we loved. And so I would sit there in my flat and put on my favourite movies from all over the place. It was like King Kong and Silence of the, actually it was Silence of the Lambs, I think it was one of them, um, The Godfather, Betty Blue, all these movies that I loved. I would sit there and watch the movie with a little notebook and go, oh, scary scene, scary music there. And and, and then, I, you know, I would watch about like four movies a day. And after, after about a week, I stopped writing stuff down because it was starting to dawn on me how a film score is shaped. And I think it's like driving. There's a point where, you just do it automatically. Even though I wasn't writing, I was just watching and listening. What was happening was the whole shape of the score was kind of, it was like a road sense. I was starting to understand, you know, how a score is broken up and it's not necessarily into like the three acts of the story. It's it's more in, sometimes it's like big tectonic movements that reprise here. And it was it was just through watching. It was just watching and listening. And so when it come to start writing, you know, I felt like I had a little bit of an instinct for it even though what we did for Leon was really just songs, you know, but we, we sort of knew what we were supposed to be doing. And it just, yeah, I mean, I loved it. I mean, the minute you start writing to picture, a funny thing happens because up until that point, I'd only ever written for bands. So you're thinking in terms of drums, bass, vocals, guitar, and, you know, it's like having four, four colors of crayon to kind of like paint with. But when you're exposed to writing something, something for for a movie it's like you're suddenly given all the colors of the you know it's like a big crayola box where if you want to put strings here you can if you want to put a, a flute here you can or a crazy sitar here it was like suddenly being able to write with all these colors just blew my mind and again it was one of those moments where i thought i don't want to go back to just writing for bass drums and guitar anymore i love it but i, I want to play with all this other stuff now and again it was one of the moments where you just think i could really do this for a long time and that's kind of how it worked out, you know. Because that, that was that got you noticed, didn't it? And then I think the next bit, the big break that you're most well-known for at that time was for Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, didn't you? Again, yeah. I remember you had a little premiere of that in, in Liverpool. And I, I think I'd been talking to you. It seemed like one of those things where it was it was going to happen and then it wasn't going to happen. Maybe you didn't have enough money. And then suddenly, fairly mad film for the time there with this great yeah. music on it, wasn't it? Yeah, it, was, it, it was crazy because we'd done, um, we'd done four or five films and we were just doing whatever we could get offered, you know? We were just learning our, learning our trade and we were loving... You know, we did a horror film after Leon. We did a romantic comedy. We did like an emotional drama. So we were learning, you know, that that was where we cut our teeth. 
but there was still nothing that would have been a movie that we would have gone and watched, you know. <laughs> Suddenly we get this phone call from somebody and it was really strange how it happened because we'd been writing some stuff for Sky Television and I'd written some riffs with Sky Sports, which was all this really kind of edgy sort of guitar stuff. And Guy had heard some of this stuff and asked somebody to find out who wrote the music for these Sky Sports promos. And that's how he got in touch. When he realised that the guy who had written all these Sky promos could actually do movies too and was had done these few movies and wasn't music school at all, was come from bands, he was like, okay, but, you know, I need to meet these guys. So, so I'd read the script and it was the funniest script I'd ever read. It was so unlike anything we'd ever been sent. Um, I just cracked up all the way through. And it was, it was like 300 pages long. It was just a huge, big draft, you know. And it was just hilarious. But I remember on the first phone call, I said, you know, I spoke to him and I said, Guy, look, you know, it's great you're interested. And I love the script. I said, but you've got to change that title. No one's going to watch a film called Lock, Stock and Two Smoking <laughs> And he was like, everyone tells me that, you know. <laughs> So we ended up meeting him and he was, he was cool. You know, he was just a, you know, very work, work. I mean, he wasn't working class, but he come across as a very kind of tough down to earth lad, you know, but he said, I don't know if the film's going to get made and, and I don't know if we'll have money to finish it, but I'd love you to do it if we do. So that was it. So we, you know, we did that one. But it's like, I mean, music and that's, it's central to it, isn't it? I mean, music's almost the character in itself, isn't it? And that I think. Yeah, well, it had to be because one of the problems that they had with an early screening of it in America was that because, this, you know, it's an ensemble piece and because there's so many characters in Lockstock, it was confusing for a lot of the Americans to understand which person each gang was in. So I had the idea, instead of having character themes to kind of have gang themes, that way, no matter who was on screen, you kind of knew, you know, if it was a bit of Scar, you knew it was that gang. If it was a bit of metal, then you knew it was Lenny's lot, you know. And I thought maybe the way to delineate it is to not even have themes, but to have a style of music for each gang. That way it would be easy for people to understand. And so I soul list a guy and he was like, that sounds cool. Just do that. You know, so it was a strange score in a way because there's actually no theme in Lockstock. It was designed in a very different way to accommodate the story because first and foremost, no matter before you even start writing music for a film, you have to think, how can I support the story? Because if you don't support the story, then the film's dead, you know? That to me was a way of doing it that helped people understand the story because then, then you could see. And then when we did that and they had the screening in America, that's when Tom Cruise saw it. And I think through him, that was how the film got finished because he saw it at a private screening of one of the cuts after we put the yeah. music on. And then that was, you know, so I felt good about that. I felt like I'd, <laughs> I'd helped a bit, you know. One, one of the scenes that everyone remembers from that film is the, is the big scene at the end where they absorb the Greek type theme. <laughs> yeah. and I, believe, I believe you ended up playing this Greek instrument. But oh, that was a, that was a performance. Well, it was it was funny because, you know, we got to the end of it and we'd only had, I think, three or four weeks to do the whole film. But there was this Zorba thing, which they couldn't clear the rights for. And, you know, Guy had been saying to me, you know, you're going to have to do the Zorba because it's got to be in the movie. It's the climax, it's the crescendo, it's the arc of that whole thing. We've got to have Zorba, but we can't afford it. So you're going to have to do your own version. And I knew a guy who played, the only guy I knew who played Bazooki, who played in, remember the Greek place on Bold Street? Yeah. I don't even know if it's still there. And then I forget the guy's name, but a big fellow with curly hair. And he had a residency there or something, and he used to play Bazooki. So 
he was supposed to come and play the bazooki on the last day of the movie. And we got the backing track together. So all it needed was the main thing, which was this really difficult, fast bazooki part. And he kept saying he could play it, he could play it. So we had him booked, I think, for like one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and it was the last day. And I thought, great, I'm done now. No more recording. I can I can have a beer. I can relax. We just got to do this bazooki. He's going to be here. It's going to be great. And then we've done the movie. So we get to the two o'clock. And the funny thing was he'd left his bazooki the night before because he had two. He had one that was a good one. And then he had one for when he was doing his restaurants and stuff. Gets to two o'clock, there's no sign. And I'm like, oh God, has he got the right, you know, he's got the right address because he, he was here last night. Where is he? And then there's a phone call put through to the desk about three o'clock saying he's still at this wedding and he's had a few drinks. He's going to do the bazooki tomorrow. And it was like, no, we've got to send it on the train tonight. You know, it's got to go. And we're like, oh, my God, we can't have Zorba the Greek without the bazooki. The, the whole film's over, you know. We're like, what are we going to do? And, you know, I'm thinking, well, the only thing we can do, because Dave was a pianist, he didn't play guitar. I was the one who played guitar. So I thought, well, what if I learned to play the bazooki? <laughs> and we tried that. And Dave's like, you've never played a bazooki before. You can't even hold it on your lap. And you've had five beers. That's not going to happen. I'm like, well, we're going to have to try. So what we did, so I stopped drinking then, obviously, because I had to sober up quickly. So I thought, well, let's just learn it section by section. And then we'll record each section as it comes. So for the next five hours, I, I would listen to the original and then figure out my version of it. And then we'd record like eight bars of it. And then we get to the next bit. But each next bit was harder than the bit before. And it was like, oh, my God. So we recorded it in chunks. And then we got to the end where I thought I was so tired and I, I you know, I ended up playing it like a, being in a punk band or something. I just went insane at the end because <laughs> couldn't really hit the notes that cleanly because I'd never played bazooki before. So I just smashed it out like the pistols. It was just like hammered the last whole minute of the track. But it had a charm to it, you know, because it was so smashed and so battered, the playing. And then we sent it off to Guy and he was dubbing the next day and he was like, oh, it's fantastic. I love how you've reimagined <laughs> this. I wasn't reimagined it. I was drunk and I couldn't play it. So it wasn't, there was no reimagining going on. It was just me trying to get it finished and sober up. Um, but, you know, I listen back to it now and, it, you know, there's a charm to it. I mean, you can tell. I mean, I can tell that I can't play it bazooki i was playing it like a guitar i even tuned it like a guitar so i could learn it quicker you know so yeah i mean anyone who plays bazooki would listen to it and go are you kidding me but it didn't matter kev it didn't matter because it had a vibe and it was exciting and it was it's distorting in places and it it, it just worked for that movie it worked because and i think it worked i mean that Again, it's because that was the first the kind of I think people have got used to that sort of stuff now. But that the music for that film was quite radical, really. And I mean, the whole film was a bit radical for the time, and it was the first of that sort of film, wasn't it? And the music was on its own as well. Well, yeah, I mean, he knew what all those songs were going to be while he was writing the script, and I think that really helped because when you know what you're going to score up to and score out of it makes it i mean a lot of composers don't like it but i i love knowing what song's coming because then you can write something in the right key you can build up the tension because you know you're going to hand over and deliver to that and then if you're coming out of it you've got the key to come out of it you can make it all seamless and you know people don't realize they they think of lockstock as like oh yeah i would thought that was just songs <laughs> loads of those things that sound like songs is me and dave 
Yeah. No, but we just designed it that way. And I think, you know, that was so refreshing for the time to really kind of curate yeah. these these little musical experiences. You know, and you get it now with James Gunn and, and you know, it's become, I mean, not because of Lockstock, but that has now become part of the, the fabric of how these cool movies are made is that you really think hard about what songs are going to be there from the beginning instead of getting to the end of the movie and seeing what the music supervisor comes up with. You know, yeah. you design it as part of your story. And, you know, Lockstock was the first British film that I remember that did that so bravely. Yeah, that's yeah. why it stood out. We're, we're going to come on to James Gunn and that a bit on uh, Suicide Squad a bit later, but um, I thought to talk first the work you did with Danny Boyle, uh, again, some of your best-known stuff with 28 Days Later and Sunshine. I mean, I think probably some of my favourite, you know, some of the favourite stuff that have you, you've done that from my point of view, but but really different. I mean, the 28 Days Later, I think, pushes the boundaries, really, doesn't it? It's, it's fairly experimental and off-kilter, isn't it, really? It's, again, going back to that punk stuff that you said and being, you know, being true to yourself, it's, it's fairly out there, isn't it? And I can't imagine that film without that music now, which I guess is the point of... Of your, of your music, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, at the time, I didn't feel that brave because um, we didn't think the film, was, again, we didn't think the film was even going to get made. In fact, the first phone call from Danny, because I'd done a couple of things with him before. He, you know, I, I was in LA at the time and he was in London and he rang me and he said, John, look, you know, I'm thinking of doing this zombie home movie. He said, but no one seems that interested. It probably won't come out. And even if it did, people probably won't want to see it. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he said, but at least we'll be able to do what we want. <laughs> I went, right, I'm in, I'm in. And that was 28. So, you know, from the very, very, very beginning, there was no pressure. There was just this whole, you know, culture between the two of us of just, let's just mess around and experiment and try stuff. In fact, the very first score to 28 Days Later, because I had this idea, I know Dan, it was Danny's idea. He said, what if we don't have music? What if we design this sound like bits of Detrius and and you know because civilization is is collapsing everything's becoming going backwards what what if we have all this sound design that's distressed and it's grainy and it's and we just don't have music it'll be brutal you know and I was like that's awesome because it made me feel like I'm about to do Sergeant Pepper you know <laughs> so I'm like, yeah let's do that let's no music that'll really be different so I spent like two weeks recording all these crazy sounds bits of radio broadcasts and doing the John Lennon thing with the microphone and swirling it around. And, and it was awesome. And he loved it. But we both, you know, when we met up in LA, we both said, I don't know, maybe we need some music in there after all. <laughs> but the point I'm making is from the very get-go, the whole, you know, the attitude was to be experimental with it. So when we realised that we really probably should have music in it, even though it was fun doing the Sgt. Pepper stuff, I didn't really want it to feel like a zombie film because it's not really a zombie film. I mean, it's got it's in that genre, but, you know, for me, it was always more like a road movie, you know, or an apocalyptic road movie. And so I had the idea of what if we don't have any music in the places where a zombie film would have music, you know, the, the really violent stuff, the action stuff. And then in all the places where you would never have music in a zombie film, you know, the thoughtful bits, the dialogue, we put music there. So it would kind of be like a, like a negative imprint of what a zombie score would be. And he loved the idea of that. So we, you know, we didn't do it 100% like that, but about 90% of the score is, is very much designed to do kind of the opposite of what you expect. And what that does is it then forces you to, to really think hard about the, the style of music and the emotion you're going to go after there. And once you start 
thinking about the thoughtful stuff in, in a movie like that and not so much about the violence. You just go down another path then, you know, so it ended up being very different, you know, from very early on, you know, and we never said, oh, let's be different, you know, it was never like that, but we both had that rebel in us, you know, to sort of try something that, that hadn't really been done before. So, you know, some of the kind of ambient weird stuff stayed in, which was cool, but, you know, we just went with what we felt was working for the movie. And, you know, even to that big ending, um, you know, the, the In the House in the Heartbeat thing, every director I would have worked with up to that point would have gone, okay, this is, you know, third act, the big finale. We've got to have crazy music. It's got to be, you know, syncopated. Every syncopated, every bit of the this action's got to be hit. We've got to do, you know, it would have been like, you know, it would have been crazy. But, you know, it was a long scene to, to sustain in that energy. So, you know, I wanted to do something that, started really 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 quietly and then just went on a, a crescendo so it's almost on like a line like this you know yeah. rather than it being syncopated in fact the only sort of syncopated point in the whole of that section is the very very end where the music stops and she says in a heartbeat which is where the title comes from but only a director as brave as danny would have gone for that because you know it was basically sort of a real slow burn you know which you'd never do <laughs> for the end of your movie like that it's like but he you know he's brave and he had the confidence to go it really did something for me so let's just go with it but it's very rare you get the chance to be that different at that I mean, point that's i mean i think for anyone listening to this or watching this in the house you, you just sort of dropped it in there that in a house in a heartbeat as though it's a little tune but i think everybody will know it even if you don't know that where it's from or what's written because it's being used everywhere and it's i think what's even more amazing is you, you did it from what i've read you did it you you put the whole thing together in in, in basically a, a cupboard in Park street didn't you because that was that yeah it was the cupboard it was the it was the back cupboard in Park street it was where they put all the all the ale which was handy <laughs> uh, and it was good you know possibly it was a good vibe because there was always musicians hanging around and you know yeah. tom's like one of my best mates and you know i could record in there and if i needed a break i literally opened the door and I could shout <laughs> shout for me beer you know it was you know in a funny way it was kind of the perfect place to do 28 days later because it was a very there was like one window and it was all you know it wasn't a studio it was just a load of gear set up but it had that garage punk kind of you know real thing going on it wasn't a, some big posh studio and i think that helped the edge of it you know um so yeah i mean it is funny i mean what was amazing was when i did the vocals with perry you know she did that beautiful vocal on bide with me there wasn't even any space in this room so when she came to do that vocal there was only space really for for one person so we had the mic stand there and i held up the lyrics for her and so she put the headphones on and she just sang in the same room that we were listening back. And, and so she was like three feet away from me as she was doing it, you know, and I'll never forget that, you know, she'd come in and she'd, I'd said, can you do this vocal? Because I love the voice and, you know, I knew Jenny from Sense of Sound and all that stuff. And she'd walked into this back room and was like, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> this is where you're doing a movie. And I was like, yeah, I know it'll be cool. It's okay. But it was so intimate and it was just one of them, you know, you don't need money to to be, you know, creative or or to have a heart. And I keep, you know, like whenever I have to speak of these things, these kids go, you know, they ask like crazy questions like, oh, what plugins do I need? What this do I need? What and I keep saying it's not about the, the gear, it's not about the equipment, it's about 
how much you understand the story and how much you feel for the story. And the only equipment you need is in your head. You need to imagine ways of this score can be, imagine ways that you can lead the audience. You know, it's not about gear or studios. It really isn't. You know, the guys, the best film scores ever written were by guys in the, you know, the 40s and, and early 50s. And they didn't have Pro Tools, you know, they just wrote on a piano. So, but yeah, I mean, it was a great place to do it. Um, and it was fun to be a par street, and uh, yeah, it was you know it just helped the vibe a lot. I think if we if we get time, we'll come back to the work you did the other work you did with Danny Boyle on Sunshine. But it seems you just mentioned doing things on on a shoestring there and doing it in very basic. And you the last big thing you've done was Suicide Squad with James Gunn, which is probably the opposite end of the spectrum <laughs> from from a, a back back room in in past with how's that been for you going from like working with you know films like Lockstock which may not come out and working in the back room of past to going you can't get much bigger than Suicide Squad so it's like, like what how's that how does that impact on John Murphy's head like because that must be a huge pressure you know what I mean it really wasn't because I mean I think because of the director I think because it was James Gunn and you know I, I love this stuff Guardians of the Galaxy films and and I got a strong sense that he was going to be a really yeah. good guy to work with. And I knew that he was a creative guy. And, you know, so he'd been in bands, you know, he'd been a singer in a punk band, you know, he'd done all... I felt like we'd have the same language, so we'd be able to talk without having to get too academic musically. And, you know, I just felt he had, again, he had that rebel in him, you know, that he was more... that he'd be more interested in just getting the vibe good and letting me do what I do, and then without putting all the pressure on... But yeah, I mean, I was conscious that it was a massive film. I mean, I flew down to Atlanta while they were shooting and I just happened to be there for the few days where they did the beach scene at the beginning. They built a beach. I mean, I've been to Pinewood and Shepparton and that's something else, but in Atlanta, they built a beach with waves and when all the lights went on, you were on a beach. I've never, ever in my life seen a set like it. So then it was like, okay, lad, you better... <laughs> You better have your head together. You got to bring your A game, you know. So there was definitely a moment then when it was like, okay, this is, you know, you're wearing big point pants now, you know. But once I started work, the funny thing was because of, you know, it was James and the producers on the film were amazing too. It felt like doing an indie movie because he was so powerful that there wasn't the usual huge load of interference from the studio and, and things being committed. And, you know, I remember doing playbacks on movies where there'd be like 20 people in my studio all listening to stuff. And, you know, you're trying to gauge where the power is, you know, like who's yeah. going to... And it's it's difficult because you'd end up just taking all the edges off stuff. But on the Suicide Squad, it was really down to James. So it was almost like going all the way back to working with Danny and Guy Ritchie on these low-budget indie films only on a massive scale, you know, because I was really only talking to him every day. So it should have been pressure, but, you know, it really wasn't. And that was really, really down to him. Because you did sort of go into self-imposed retirement for six or seven years. Was that was it that sort of, was this why you came back for, I mean, Les Miserables was the first one, I guess, and then you couldn't actually get much bigger than this, could you do it? <laughs> like, if you're looking oh, for yeah. life, this well, wasn't the film, was it? It's funny. I mean, I only stopped. I mean, I think Kick-Ass was the last film I did. And I just needed a break, to be honest. And I was feeling burnt out. And people were asking me to just repeat myself. You know, it was like, oh, we love what you did on Sunshine. Can you do that again? 
Oh, we love what you did on 2018. And, you know, it's not, that's not very creative. I mean, it's flattering, but it's not very creative. So, I, you know, I needed a break after Kick-Ass. And, I, you know, I wanted to be with my kids. You know, I'd, I missed out on a lot of stuff with them. And, you know, they were young when I started doing movies. So I had a great time just chilling with my family, doing all the things that, that you know, normal stuff. And um, I set my record label up and I'd released some things myself. And it was good just to write music for the sake of it, you know, whether I'm to write something to a brief or write something that you're going to have to take notes on. So, but, you know, I hadn't intended it to be that long. But when we moved house, I thought, well, I'm going to have to go back to work now. And the kids were older. <laughs> you know, in the old days, the kids were like, Dad, why do we never see you? And then, you know, there came a point where they get older and like, Dad, you used to be cool when you did movies. Why don't you do movies? It was like, I only stopped for you, you know. So it was time, it, you know, it was time. So, and I thought doing something like Les Mis, even though I don't like musicals, I mean, I loved, um, you know, I loved the book and I loved Victor Hugo. And I remember reading Les Mis on one of the tours with the Lotus Eaters, funnily enough, going through France, which was awesome, you know, you're reading Victor Hugo as you're traveling through. So, you know, it seemed like a brilliant thing to just blow the cobwebs away. And I knew that I could... I did, they didn't want me to do anything like the musical and they, they wanted something a bit earthier. In fact, my pitch to them was, what if it was kind of like the Velvet Underground meets, you know, French folk music, you know? And they were like, that's genius, you know? Let's do, I mean, it didn't end up that way, but that was my pitch was... I think there's a bit, I think there's a bit of that in there. I think there's, a little there's bit that, stayed in, Yeah, I really liked that. And I, do you know what? I watched it and loved the music and didn't realise you'd done it until later on. Just, is, well, you know, I, I like, I mean, some of the stuff in it, because it was very stripped down and, and you know, not what people expected. I mean, I liked the, the really stripped down stuff because, you know, I think sometimes you can get to the heart of story or the heart of a character by by getting smaller you know you don't have to do this big sweeping stuff so that was brilliant doing lame is and because it was so much music and in a short space of time it it did blow the cobwebs away because you know you'd always have this fear you know you'd, yeah. you'd think what happens one day i wake up and i turn the tap on and nothing comes out you know because music is is such a weird art in you know in itself it's sound waves it's and then it's how that re reacts with you know neurologically and how that reacts with your own upbringing and you know it's a complex emotional thing music and so when you're writing it you never ever really know if you're ever going to get a tune again you know so i, I was nervous going into lameness but one again once the fear kicks in and you got to start then you get you know you just get going i love doing lameness and again it was nice to do something that people didn't expect because the last thing i wanted to do was you know having done kick ass was to go oh you know where did i leave off you know what i mean it just seemed like boring i thought no let's just do something different and then of course the plan was to you know to do a tv thing first and then do a little indie film i thought great i've done my tv thing <laughs> let's find a nice little indie movie then, no yeah. one's heard of new director no pressure and i'll just ease my way back in and then james gunn rings me up and it's like you want to do the suicide squad and it's like okay well that's that plan yeah. I heard he seeked you out, well, obviously because of your previous work, but I believe he quoted the, um, it, you had a funny beetle accent that, keep him that kept him amused. <laughs> it's funny. He loves it. He just <laughs> loves it. You know, yeah. and sometimes doing these, you know, conversations with him and I see this big smile on his face and I'm like, and, I'm, and then I go, oh, it's, it's the accent. <laughs> oh, okay. it's so, yeah.
but he's a he's a, he's a brilliant guy and he's a phenomenal director. But you know, he's another one that's really really well known for his music, especially after Guardians. And I know he writes his songs in his scripts. He's got he's got a well thought out, but it's such an eclectic soundtrack. You've got like Louis Prima and you've got the Pixies in there, so it's a there's a good mix there. It's um, brilliant, you know. Unbelievable, yeah, just the gigolo. That was what that's one of my favorites. But that was that was a question I was curious actually because that's so good in the film. But is there ever any scene um, when the choose when the director chooses a soundtrack, chooses an established song where you think I'd have composed something that I'd have preferred in there? <laughs> Loads of times, yeah. And sometimes I do, you know, sometimes I go, you know what? You know, if I can get it finished, I'll, you know, I'll say, look, that's kind of a bit crap, you know. Let let me try something there because and sometimes they're just stuck with it. And other times they're like, yeah, I thought that too. Yeah, right, you know, write something. So, you know, you got to choose your battles. You know what I mean? You don't want to, you know, if you've got like an immense track there, you don't want to go, oh, I can do something better than that. Because you're just setting yourself up for failure. <laughs> you can see, as a composer, you can see that, yeah, it's a great song, but what's it doing for the movie? And it's not doing too much for the movie. Then you can say, let me try something that might, you know, stitch this together better or might just work dramatically better. But yeah, there's loads of times that happens. Um, but usually I try and just get the score finished first because, you know, then if I know I've got time, then I might say, it. if not, I just keep my mouth shut. What I found was quite amazing was the way, obviously it's, it's full of such bizarre characters, like the, like the Z-list comic book characters. There's some of them are like fully CG, obviously like King Shark. There was so much emotional weight for it. I particularly thought with being King Shark in the aquarium. I'd be in bits. Yeah, I mean, one of James's biggest charms, I think, and biggest skills, and he, and he does this probably better than any other director, is his ability to invest so much humanity into characters that aren't human. You know, you look at Groot, you know, it, it's a tree, but you love Groot and you know him and, and you, you know, and then you've got Rocket, who's a, some kind of raccoon, and you understand his anger and bitterness. You know what I mean? So he can do that. He... You know, he does it so skillfully, you know, and, you know, the same with King Shark. You've got a character that, you know, a great white shark. You think, how could you make a great white shark cute? Well, you make sure he has no friends and you put him in Bermuda shorts for the start. You know, so you sort of, he's got this brilliant skill for that. But one of the cooler things about the Suicide Squad is that um, it's kind of designed as a score quite strangely you know you have your thematic structure and whatever but it's almost like a crescendo from the beginning to the end that's sort of interspersed with these like heavily stylized emotional character moments so you like you said the thing with king shark more than anything me and james wanted to entertain with the music you know so that gave me license to go well okay we've got this moment and it's very separated from the rest of the story you know you've got all this the action's about to start but then you suddenly have this really introspective moment where you see King Shark on his own and he just wants friends and he's looking at the pretty Clyrax, you know? And I thought, well, if I didn't know what the score was about, what would I like to write here? He's so innocent. And I just kept hearing that little, you know, la, 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 la. Because I love all that French film, 60s stuff, you know? I thought that would be like really cool, you know, to just do something like that. And then I thought, well, it's not going to appear anywhere else in the film. It's a standalone, almost like a vignette. But, I thought, but it, it makes me laugh and it, it makes me love him. So why don't I just send it to James and see? And he loved it straight away. He said, it's got all the right nuances, nailed it next, you know. And so once I'd, I'd been given that vote of confidence, then whenever we got to one of these scenes where, same with Whack Catcher, 
you know, you've got which he's talking about a father and really emotional scene. And, you know, I love Morricone. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be lovely to just do a little Morricone moment here, you know, with the soft, low strings and the, the acoustic guitar because, you know, she's she's got this Iberian thing going on. And, and that went down great, too. And so I thought, well, maybe we just don't have to worry about doing these scenes to fit in with the rest of the tone of the score. If we make a, you know, a, a decision about it, that we're going to do that, then that becomes a new rule that you can break. So whenever we got to those moments, and the same with Polka Dot Man, you know, I looked at that scene where he's telling you this terribly heartfelt dark story. And, you know, he's so retro and lame. I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to have like a, you know, like a 73 Moog sort of sound there with all the cheap reverbs and, and write something really poignant. And so it was working. So there's very few scores, that, certainly that I've done, that would break rules that, that brazenly. But we made it a rule of the score that if we want to do that, we can just do that. So it's a strange design of a score, you know, but it because the movie is so comic. I mean, I love these films anyway, but it's so blatantly comic book that you've got, you know, I mean, the, look what the fighting at the end of the movie, you know what I mean? It's, I just thought maybe this is the movie where I can get away with doing that, where... It just, you know, I write a comic book score, you know, and and don't be too clever about it, and don't be, don't think too hard about the shape and the structure and the, and just write what works for those scenes, and and it worked. People listening will probably, and people have asked me all the time, how do they get into this game? What would you advise anyone, a young John Murphy type person in Liverpool at the moment who'd love to do something like you're doing? What would you advise? You know, I say the same thing, you know, every time and it's, it's as true to me now as it was when I first realised it is, is be yourself as much as you can. And, you know, you can't always do it because, you, know, you, you, you know, you're trying to save the film. But, you know, in every opportunity you have, don't try to sound like somebody else and don't feel like you have to sound like somebody else. Um, I mean, that's the advice that I wish somebody had told me, you know, it is find whatever it is in your DNA that that makes you want to go that way and explore that, you know, find your own thing and be the best at being your version of that. You know, just forget about trying to sound like Hans Zimmer or Howard Shore or whoever, just bravely just go at your own path and, and, you know, do it with a lot of commitments as well, because it's only when you have your own sound and your own voice that for me, at least that's when things started happening. You know, I'd done these movies where, you know, they wanted this type of score. So I tried to write that type of score. And it wasn't until 28 Days Later, which was the first score where I had the balls to actually do exactly what I thought it should be. And then suddenly everything changed from that movie. Everything was like, oh, that's new. And it was like, oh, my God, why didn't I do that? For me? It, it, that was the moment. It was just as simple as that, Kev. It was just, oh, why don't I try and just be John Murphy? Let's see how that goes. And that would be the best advice I would give to anyone doing this is start putting some commitment into what you're going to be naturally great at, you know, whatever your DNA is. Because only then are you going to end up with a sound that no one else in the world has got. You know, it's that Oscar Wilde thing, isn't it? you know, be yourself. Everyone else has taken. You know, I love that. But that's very much how it works because... You know, there's a million Hans Zimmers in LA, but there's only one Hans Zimmer that gets all the jobs. You, you, you better be in your own thing as much as you can in every opportunity that you can. And, you know, don't be, don't be scared of doing that. Just go yeah. for it.
I think you know that's a great answer. I think you're um, obviously you can do the whole, you can do all sorts of stuff. But my favourite bits of your music is other punky bits, which I think you can, you can tell you're an old punk of heart as well. Because some of some of those guitar sounds stuff you get those dirty guitars, and I think there's a, I think there's a remix of Add Joe from um, Sunshine, um, a, a dirty mixed strobe or something, which is yeah. which is stunning. If anyone who hasn't heard it, it's a it's a brilliant version to listen to. No, but I love that. I mean, there's a lot of things I love, but, you know, few things in life that can cheer you up of a morning than a fuzz box, you know? And, <laughs> you know, and I've got these, like, really, some really expensive amps, but, you know, I love the little Voxes. I've got, a, you know, an old Vox Pathfinder from, like, 1960. And you just you just want to be in a band again when you plug it in, you know? It's this tiny little thing, and I've used it all over the Suicide Squad. It's, I mean, I just have never forgotten that first week to be honest, of, of playing electric guitar, yeah. that feeling of like, I mean, it's funny because that the opening of the score to the Suicide Squad, I heard in my head as I was coming back from Atlanta, you know, that, <laughs> you know, and I was, you know, I've been talking to James and we were going, whatever it is, we've got to have attitudes. And he was like, yeah, attitude. And I'm like, we're going to really, and I'm like, yeah, we were all, you know, I was all hyped up. Everything's going to have attitudes. And so I'm on the plane coming back to LA and I'll just keep hearing this like, da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, oh, that's a good rhythm because it's primal. You know, that could start the movie off. And then I'm thinking, I'll get back home and then I'll just work out a riff with notes. And then I tried different riffs with it. And I was like, it doesn't feel as good as just hitting the one string. <laughs> I thought, can I get away with a one note theme, you know? And then so I just did this whole track. I mean, the track, it doesn't even change chord. You know, it's the biggest movie I've ever worked on. And my opening flag is like a tune a theme with one note and a song that doesn't even change chord. But I played it really rough and sent it to Jen. And he was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. And I was like, fantastic. I've got a director that actually isn't scared of going, it just feels good. So I love doing that stuff. And I think it's hilarious that I've actually managed to write a one note theme. Um, that, but, I, but if it's vibey, that, that's what matters. You know what I mean? It's like if it's giving you a kick when you play it, then you you hope that if you can keep that energy and don't sanitize it, that it's going to mean something when you're in a big theater and you've got the movie playing. So, you know, I don't worry about that stuff anymore, Kev. I mean, I used to. I used yeah. to feel like, I keep saying, I used to feel like the Velveteen Rabbit when I came to LA. I was like this, when am I ever going to be a real composer, you know, when I learned to read music? And But now I don't care about that <laughs> stuff. You know, I just, you know, no one cares about it when I try to write big, lush orchestral music. They only go, oh, I love that riff. And it's like, <laughs> I played that on the first day of play guitar. You can teach a two-year-old to play that. And that's okay, you know, so. Two last questions. As you know, I knew you as a lad from Bootle. You're now mixing in... a lad from Bootle. <laughs> really fired circles in, in LA. I did hear, I'm not sure if it's true, but um, I did hear that once Guy Ritchie and Madonna were sitting in your flat in Liverpool, but I was going to ask you anyway, is there, there must have been at least one like drop, jaw-dropper moment when you've gone, I'm talking to so-and-so, or is, is it just commonplace now? No, there was loads of moments. I mean, Madonna never came to Liverpool, but Guy stayed with me in Liverpool for a bit. Um, which was funny because at the time I was in this, I was in Claremont Road and Wavertree and he'd been staying in this lovely big posh place in London and he, he had to come and stay with me for a bit while we worked out the music. And But I was sharing the flat with like four student girls, you know, so it was a madhouse, you know. So he kind of gets up the taxi and into this like little terraced house and he had to, I said, you know, I showed him and he had the smallest room as well. He was cool about it, but, <laughs> but Madonna never came to Liverpool. But 
when I was doing Snatch, I got a, a flat in Gooch Street and a guy would come over every day and hear stuff. And then he'd just end up like hanging out for a few hours. And then, um, you know, Madonna started to come over to just hang out. And that was a bit, you know, what, you know, I'm kind of trying to work and, you know, right in the way. And then sometimes guy'd go and Madonna would stay. So I'm in this tiny little room and I'm, you know, trying to write stuff. And then I'd forget because I'd get into what I was doing. And then I'd just look over my shoulder and there's Madonna sitting on the couch, you know, and then I'd go, okay, that's weird. So then, and then she'd go, do you want a cup of tea? You know, and she'd make me a cup of tea, but she was cool. And, you know, I went over to their house a few times and, you know, she made dinner for us and stuff. Very smart woman, you know, but yeah, I mean, when someone's as famous as Madonna, you do have to go all right lad <laughs> calm down you know it's uh any any other big names though that you've gone i mean you're there peer now well i'm not sure about that but, anyone yeah. where you've gone I, I can't believe i'm talking to so and so or is it you passed that no i mean you never passed it i mean if it's people that you that you love the work you know yeah i mean look i'm a fan the same as everybody i love movies you know i mean i, I still go oh wow you know all the time it was lovely meeting Margot Robbie the other night at the premiere. She's just so sweet, you know. It was, and she was, you know, I went with my daughter Molly, and Molly had a good chat with her for a bit. You know, she she's like, you know, you talk about star quality and presence. Yeah. I mean, it's like, my God, you know, she was just, she was lovely. Brad Pitt was cool when we did Snatch. You know, we hung out a bit on the set there. Um, I was actually in the movie till he cut me out. <laughs> You know, I was the drunk mandolin player or something, but I got cut from the film. And then when we came back to L.A., Brad come round to the house with Matthew Vaughan, you know, because uh, he just wants to be in a band. That's the funny thing. <laughs> the premiere of Snatch, we were talking and he was like, you know, about music and he was saying, I'm so jealous, you know, that you, you know, you get to be in a band. You get to, I'm like, you're Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, what are you? And he's like, no, no, but wouldn't it be great to be in it? I'm like, you're Brad Pitt. I know. So... You know, so there's moments like that which are good. And, you can't, know, ever, uh, can't ever forgive him for that accent, though, in, in Snatch. That's a terrible... <laughs> well, the funny thing was, that was not supposed to be funny. But when he started doing it, I was there when they were shooting that stuff, and it was weird because I'm watching them shoot these scenes, and Jennifer Aniston was in next to us in this little, like, posh SUV. She wouldn't come out because it was all field. So it was surreal anyway. But as soon as he started doing this, this accent, you know, Guy was just cracking up. And he was going, we've got to subtitle that because it'll be really funny. And that's how it wasn't supposed to be funny. I don't think so anyway, but it was just one of them them things that he got so into it, the dag and all that stuff. But, but, uh, but you know, most of these guys are really, really cool. Um, when that I did Miami was... Vice, I remember Johnny Depp, you know, came into the studio every day and to listen to the orchestra. And he'd sit next to me while I was like waving my hands around. And, you know, you sort of forget he's there. And then you look and go, oh, there's Johnny Depp sitting next to me. So... You know, you never get used to it, but you've sort of still got to get on with your job, you know. Uh, last last question then, and it kind of comes back to where we started with Liverpool. So I think the last Liverpool project I'm re- I remember you being involved in was Liam, like written by Jimmy McGovern, Stephen Freer yeah. directed, Ian Hart was in it. Surely you've, we've got to get you back to do a big TV or film Liverpool-based project. You know, you've, you've got to cover and people doing stuff here now. It, it, Stephen Graham. I'd love to. You know, I know Ian. Ian's a, Ian's a lovely fella. It, Ian's been over to see me um, since we've been in LA too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, you know, what an actor as well. But yeah, I mean, I, that would be lovely. I mean, I would love to do that. You know, the 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 city has never left me for a moment, and um, you know, it, it would be really, you know, it'd be very emotional for me to sort of come back and do something in Liverpool for sure. Um, so that's that's our mission yeah. to get to get John Murphy back. On a Liverpool project. That would be fantastic, yeah.
Absolutely. Really, can't, can't really grateful for your time, John. I know, yeah, particularly when you've been working all night. And um, congratulations on the su- Suicide Squad. We'll Excuse have to again. You can tell us more about how you work and what you plan to do next and stuff. Pleasure, mate. Next. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks a lot, John. Pleasure. I'll see you when you're over here. Give me best to everybody back home, okay? Will do. All right, no, thanks Thank a lot. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.